Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Joe Hardy. And I'm Rolf Nelson. Guest today is Eric Gallen, who uh, works at the Veterans Administration uh, <clears throat> at the National Center for Rehabilita Rehabilitative Auditory Research in Portland, Oregon. He's also an associate professor uh, at the Oregon Health and Science University Department of Otolaryngolo Otolaryngology. Am I saying that right? That's pretty good, man. That's a tough word. Otolaryngology. Head and neck surgery and neuroscience graduate program. Uh, he's also the editor of a couple journals and is publishing like crazy these days on uh, work in audition and issues that are related to uh, hearing loss and um, ways to rectify that. So welcome, Eric Gellin, and thanks for joining us today. Great. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I like. I always like an opportunity to talk about this stuff with uh, people that I don't normally talk to. Uh, <laughs> I talk to audiologists a lot, and that's that's useful. But I think that this stuff is is more broadly relevant. So let's talk about um, some of the kind of work that you do. So you work primarily with veterans at the Veterans Administration, uh, and primarily with hearing loss. So what kind of issues do you run into and uh, what kind of uh, what kind of research do you do that uh, is aimed towards helping veterans? Yeah, so um, that it's it's true that that's where I started out. Um, but uh, the things that we figured out have sort of led me to to branch out from that, actually. So when I when I came to uh, uh, the Portland VA in 2006, um, we were just uh, beginning to realize what was going on with uh, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, and in, in terms of hearing health care, uh, there were all these people coming back from these uh, conflicts and coming into the audiology clinic uh, with hearing complaints, and they would do their regular clinical testing, basically pure, play uh, pure tones, little beeps as quietly as possible and see what was the quietest beep that you could hear at different frequencies across the whole range of frequencies that are important for speech understanding. So like the same kind of thing that most people might remember doing in elementary school. Exactly. Exactly. Just raise your hand when you hear the beep. Um, and these folks were were doing fine on that. And so the audiologists, you know, said, well, you don't you don't actually seem to have a hearing problem. And they said, no, I definitely do, because when I go into a restaurant, I'm completely overwhelmed. Uh, you know, I can't can't deal with sporting events like, you know, the, the family conversation, the dinner table, it, you know, it's just just chaos for me. And it, it didn't used to be that way. And so they came to us and they said, you know, uh, you guys know a little bit about uh, how the brain is involved in hearing. Can you Maybe think of some tests that you guys could do to to see if we're, there's something that we're missing, because because these folks seem very concerned and they're not very happy that we tell them that we there's nothing we can do for them. Um, and so uh, we got a grant from the BA to uh, do some uh, testing uh, using uh, the sorts of tests that are normally done for uh, children with auditory processing disorders. So. Um, dichotic listening so you play speech to the two ears and and you have them uh tell tell what happened at the two ears when there was competing speech um gaps in noise tasks so you play you play broadband noise 
and you play little gaps in that, you know, you turn it on and off very quickly and you see what's the shortest gap that they can detect. Um, various uh, things that are a little more advanced than just uh, listening to beeps or listening to speech in quiet. And um, almost immediately we began to see um, a, a, a large number of the folks that we that we brought in who had been uh, on the battlefield and in particular the people who had had bombs go off near them they'd been exposed to high intensity blasts were doing very poorly on some of these tests and it wasn't now, like they were bombing everything and just to jump in here now they're they're doing okay on the some of the detection tasks some of those basic detection tasks yeah. so it's not that they can't hear anything that's right okay yeah. And, and so you're so, you're thinking that the ears are probably okay, more or less, but there's something going on in the brain further down in the auditory processing stream. Exactly, exactly. And a lot of these tests were developed by looking at people with uh, brain lesions, so people with strokes or people from the Vietnam era uh, who had penetrating head wounds. So mm -hmm. you could actually say for sure, yes, I can see where the bullet trace was and you know where, where where the bullet track was, and 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 yes, this part of your auditory cortex was damaged, and people who have that kind of damage do poorly on this kind of complex auditory task. And so we we chose our task based on that kind of evidence. Um, and it's, yeah, it sounds it's so interesting. To, uh, you know, reading your paper, thinking about this too, the the kinds of injuries that people are experiencing uh, are so different nowadays. Uh, or there, or we're more aware of it, perhaps as well, uh, with so many people having closed head injuries, where they're they're not having a bullet in the brain, but they're experiencing trauma from a blast or other, uh, you know, sort of crash type injury. Exactly. Uh, and and it's just it's very uh, it's it's very topical in, in the context of of the whole concussion thing as well. Exactly. So it it really comes out of. Um, the amazing technological improvements in terms of both um, uh, protection, so armor, and also um, medical technology. You know, so if you were injured in World War II, mm. it would be two weeks before you got, you know, to to a hospital with with real surgical equipment. If you're injured in Afghanistan, you know, you're in you're in Landsfield, Germany, at the you know, major military hospital, you know, within 12 hours, maybe six. Yeah, this I think um, the same was true during uh, World War One, where they started getting a lot more um, people with in with uh, gunshot wounds to the back of the head that ended up surviving because this was after penicillin. So you get um, I mean, normally, if you get shot in the head and you don't have some sort of antibiotic, you're just dead. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. but once you get people surviving this, then you get a better sense of of uh, what kinds of trauma can happen. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, all of a sudden we have people, you know, surviving helicopter crashes where they lose, you know, both their legs, you know, um, and and all. And so we have had to figure out what this uh, means, you know, and. So we had to develop an entire new class of injury, uh, which we call polytrauma, which means that you have major injuries to multiple systems. And the way that we take care of you is very different from somebody who has um, 
just one of these injuries, right? So if you if you have a major limb amputation and you have a traumatic brain injury, you know, um, rehabilitation for both of those things now becomes very difficult. Yeah, it's 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 interesting that uh, you know the uh, you know the kinds of injuries that people think about with hearing and uh, warfare. Obviously, are so you're exposed to a lot of loud noises. Yeah, which which is totally true. Uh, you know, certainly I have um, my father-in-law uh, was in Vietnam and he was exposed to. You know, he's, he worked in a tank. You know, he was yep. a tank commander, and a lot of you know explosives going off very close to his head. Uh, you know, left him with with very severe permanent uh, hearing loss, and it even took a long time for the VA to even acknowledge that. That that was what was even happening for just such an obvious case of being exposed to loud noises, you know. And my father as well, you know, his hearing is not so great, and he's all, you know, he's in his seventies now, so who knows? It could be normal age-related uh, hearing loss, but he also served in Vietnam. Uh, so I think that's what we usually think of when we think of hearing loss, which is absolutely a problem, right? I mean, there's no question. That's yeah, no, no question. No, that's question. definitely definitely part right, of it. So we but, have it could be some cumulative cumulative loss. Um, just through loud noises, um, like going to a loud concert too much. Yeah, and then I guess, and then Eric, what you're bringing to the table here is, you know, above and beyond that, mm -hmm. you've got, you know, some tra some trauma to the, uh, you know, to the inside part of the brain uh, that is causing difficulties above and beyond those peripheral losses. So exactly. now, did you you're, you're doing some scanning of these patients and what kinds of uh, damage are you finding so that was so a, some of so some of, i mean obviously i think you 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 mentioned that it's it's going to be somewhat of a mess because they're not going to be consistent um it's everyone's going to be a little bit different than yeah. a different sort of trauma but is there anything that ties this kind of uh hearing loss where people are having a, a difficulty in understanding in more complex environment uh so any kind of brain damage that seems to be responsible for this so the the crazy thing is that um all of the clinical tools that we have in terms of imaging um, tend to show no damage. And so that was one reason that um, it took so long for people to really start paying attention to this. And, and you know, you mentioned the sports concussion. Well, it actually came out of, you know, the way that I experienced this discussion was we, we started saying, oh, you know, this is you know, this, this, these concussions are happening all the time to these people on the battlefield. This is a problem. And then people said, well, but come on, there are so many people that get multiple concussions in sports and they're fine. <laughs> but wait, maybe, <laughs> but wait, maybe they're not. <laughs> <laughs> and then people started saying, well, wait a minute, have we actually checked to see if they're fine? And then they started checking and they said, oh my goodness, look at it's All just like the battlefield going on. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, it's uh, in, in both cases, um, we think that the mechanisms of injury uh, are, are really on the level of uh, connections between brain areas. It's these long uh, fiber tracts um, that, that move the information around among brain areas that are most vulnerable to the movement and to the swelling. So when you have a concussion, uh, often what happens is that there there'll be some some areas that are that are injured and maybe maybe they'd be okay, but the swelling 
of the of that area damages the areas next to it. And then neurons, what they do when they're damaged is they go through programmed cell death. They go through apoptosis. And so in animal models, what you see is that um, the connectivity among areas is massively decreased about two weeks after the injury. Well, this is a problem clinically because all of our diagnostics are based on what happens at the time of injury and maybe about the 24 hours after. And so if the if the the major effects are are taking two weeks to to a month to really uh, go through their whole time course, um, then then our clinical diagnosis process may be missing some really important things. Now, does it seem does it seem as though? Uh, sorry, I'm getting a little feedback here. Let me just try asking. Um, <clears throat> uh, does it? Sorry, I'm still getting I'm getting just a little feedback from somebody. Do you want me to I... Hello? Hello? Hello. Oh, it sounds okay now. It sounds okay. Is it now. all right? Yeah. Yeah. Um so uh the question that I'd have is um is there any is there any particularly localized areas that this seems to affect, or is it something that just kind of affects? So if you've got this swelling throughout the brain and it's just kind of causing general tissue damage, is there anything particular that seems to be um, important for auditory processing that, that reliably gets damaged? Or is it just, I mean, I guess when you're, talk, you're talking about understanding complex auditory sounds, um, likely taking you know, being processed in large portions of the brain. Um, so you could imagine that it could be affected by uh, whole brain damage or or localized. Is there any indication that it's one or the other? So at, at this point, we've, we've just had a really hard time uh, pinning this down because the imaging measures that, that do show uh, some effects um, tend not to be ones that are used uh, in routinely in, in clinical uh, treatment. Um, so there's um, diffusion tensor imaging, which is a way of looking at the connectivity among brain areas. Um, but that's a pretty sophisticated technique uh, that, that doesn't, doesn't happen uh, in most patient care. Um, and so we've been, uh, we've been sort of you know, sounding the alarm about, about these auditory effects for a while but haven't really managed to get the attention of <clears throat> the people who are experts in imaging yet. So we're, we're still waiting for um, a, a way to, to really answer some of these questions. You know, I, I have some, uh, some ideas. I think that, that what happens is, is there's probably widespread damage, and depending on the person, um, you're going to get damaged to different areas. Um, I thought that the reason that we were so, seeing so much auditory damage is because, you know, those were the tools that we had. You know, we have we have a hammer, so so we found a bunch of nails um, or things that looked like nails. But I started talking to some of the uh, other folks who work on this, and they say, no, actually, the auditory injury may be uh, one of the one one of the things that is most sensitive. To this kind of disconnection, you know, the the very precise timing of information is so important for auditory processing that it may be a very good 
uh, indicator that there's something wrong in the brain. And as we start looking at the memory systems and the visual systems and the balance systems, then we begin to see other things as well. So other, could you get yeah. maybe <clears throat> could you give an example of maybe what it sounds like or what what confusion might be like for a veteran with this kind of brain injury? Um, one of the things that they talk about a lot is just the inability to select one voice uh, from among a lot of people talking. Right. So if you're if you're at a busy restaurant, uh, you've got uh, the person that you're trying to talk to across from the table, but you've also got people on on the other tables talking. Maybe the maybe two other people at, at your table are talking to each other. There are dishes clanking. There's music playing. Um, you know, there's kids running by and yelling. You know, and then and the, then when the waitress comes by and and is ready to take your order, like you you may have no idea that somebody's trying to talk to you uh, because all the things that you use to sort out that scene are actually pretty low level auditory processing feeding into high level uh, sort of uh, sound source identification, right? So you want to take the information that's hitting your eardrum as a, as a mash and divide it up and turn it into uh, indicators that there are objects in different parts of the world that are making specific sounds. And so the things that we do use to do that are uh, temporal correlation. So if a bunch of different things all happen at once, then probably uh, all of those sounds are coming from the same source. If all of the sounds come from the same direction, then they're probably coming from the same source. And so if you have trouble with that timing, now all of a sudden, you may not be able to use that cue as well to create a source. If you have trouble with uh, localization of, of sounds, now all of a sudden it doesn't really sound like uh, things are really coming from distinct places. It's sort of sort of blurry. So, you know, there's something kind of on the left and something kind of on the right, but you can't really tell that there are you know three things on the left and two things on the right. I was thinking also when you know with this type of uh, coordination uh, intracortically that you know, the attentional factors might play a big role as well. So yeah. the ability to direct dynamically your attention to different cues and different sources could be affected. It would be interesting to look at you know, default mode networks versus attentional networks uh, in the resting state, for example. Exactly, exactly. And we, we really, we feel like there's a lot of uh, really important work that, that still needs to be done in pulling this stuff apart, right? Because we believe that there is strong interaction between these bottom-up cues of the sort I was just talking about and the top-down attentional uh, and executive function cues that or, or uh, abilities that let you uh, make make use of these these bottom-up sort of automatic segregation cues. You know, because sometimes you have to override them. You have to say, well, it sounds like yes, those things did happen at the same time, but I know that I was listening to somebody talking about topic X and these things really go with that. So I'm not going to not going to move it into that stream. Um, and if you as you say, if you if you're having trouble with your attentional system, you, you may make errors on that as well. OK, so. Now you've got these people with uh, fundamentally different kind of hearing loss or something that seems a little tricky. Uh, is there, what kind of uh, intervention seems to 
work best? I mean, of course, with a hearing aid, just turning up the volume is really simple, right? But how do you how do you devise something, either a, a program of training or some kind of hearing aid that that can Im improve understanding for these people? Yeah, so that's that's a huge, huge problem. Uh, we just did a survey. Um, we had 200 uh, VA and civilian audiologists um, tell us, you know, how often do you see people who have uh, normal uh, pure tone thresholds but still have difficulties hearing and noise? And you know, what do you what do you do for them? How, how do you do the diagnostics and and what kind of rehabilitation? Um, and we got a lot of very high, uh, we're still analyzing the data, so I can't give you exact numbers, but we got a, a very high percentage of people saying, yeah, I definitely see people like this. And the heterogeneity in terms of what is actually happening on the ground uh, was remarkable. You know, everybody had a different definition of what auditory processing disorder means. There were, you know, as many different diagnostic uh, approaches as, as, as I'd ever thought of. And uh, the rehabilitation, you know, there are some people who say, you know, I, 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 I fit them with hearing aids, even though they, they don't seem to need them and they love them. There are other people who said, well, I use auditory training, games. Um, there are other people who said, well, you know, I just explain to them what's going on and that really helps a lot and, you know, give them techniques in terms of, you know, avoiding noisy situations, explaining to their family what's happening. Um, so right now the the field is in uh, complete uh, uh, chaos in terms of what exactly should be doing who should be doing and that's because the evidence isn't there we don't know it, it was interesting to me that that so many people um, do find that hearing aids are effective because you might think well it's just going to turn everything up you know why 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 should it help yeah hearing aids are interesting you know having uh, worn them myself just in the context of you know um, wanting to experience it and and see how they work and you know in the you know uh, being involved in the industry of selling hearing aids for a while, you definitely hear better even if you don't have a hearing problem with hearing aids, right? I mean they're they're oh. remarkable devices, and uh, you know the the other the other that relates to this issue, which is that. We talk, and, and this is true in vision as well, but I feel like it's even more so the case in hearing, which is that we use this threshold approach that if you're below a certain threshold in terms of your hearing, you've got quote unquote hearing loss. And if you're not below that threshold, you don't have hearing loss. You have quote unquote normal hearing, but there's a huge range of uh, hearing sensitivity that falls both within the normal range and then within the uh, ab, quote unquote hearing loss or abnormal range as well. So I, I think there's a lot of subtlety there. Yeah, and I, I think that one of the things that that uh, I've learned by working with veterans is that a lot of them came into their military service with very, very good sensory abilities. You know, they they had spent a lot of time honing their abilities through sports and just, you know, the, the types of people that, you know, these days, with, because we have a volunteer army, you know, these are people that want to do these sorts of tasks. And so I might say, oh, well, you know, you only have 15 dB of hearing loss, and so you're in the normal range. And they say, are you kidding me? That, like, I'm, I'm really impaired. I can't do the things I used to do. 
Right. That's we and uh, you know you mentioned in your paper that uh, you know as well that we don't take a baseline of some of these things you know in the in the way that you would need to to really know how that's changed over time. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so one of Okay, go ahead. One of the things that I've that I've learned um, uh, is that um, it's very important to pay close attention to what the uh, patient is telling you. You know, I, I was trained as a as a basic uh, scientist, and and so you know my my inclination is to believe my instruments. Um, but uh, when when the patient tells me. You know your your instruments don't line up with my experience. Um, it's not that my instruments are wrong, but uh, it's 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 time to think carefully about what tests I'm doing and the conclusions that I'm drawing. So what? Uh, so another thing you've been doing is working on uh, the, the development and validation of a, a portable testing. Um, a portable test for uh, audition. Uh, and is this something, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Is this something that can help to detect uh, maybe trickier to find versions of hearing loss, these uh, maybe more of this confusion kind of hearing loss? Uh, and you can say a little bit about something about what the tool is is uh, designed for. Yeah. That, that's that's exactly right. It was it was through working with these veterans that I realized that one of the big obstacles uh, to providing them the appropriate diagnostics and thus rehabilitation is that the clinical care as it exists right now um, doesn't include a lot of the basic auditory processing testing that um, I would do in my laboratory and. As I talk to clinicians about, you know, well, it looks from our, you know, as I would get, I would tell them about our data, and I'd say it looks like you should probably be testing some of these more super threshold uh, abilities, and they would sort of look at me and they're like, yeah, but my audiometer doesn't do that, and I wasn't trained to do that in school, so, you know, what, how, how, how can I do it, you know? And our first approach was, well, we'll use some of these auditory processing tests that have been used for. Uh, diagnosing children with auditory processing disorders. But as I looked into those tests, I realized that a large number of them are really tests that were developed um, by psychologists in the in the 1970s, and they really are not very clean ways of of assessing the system. And we've we've got a lot of things that work in the laboratory. And so um, I started teaming up with uh, Aaron Seitz, who's the director of the UC Riverside Brain Game Center, uh, because he, he explained to me that he had been doing a lot of his vision testing using an iPad. Uh, and I said, well, can that really work? You know, isn't that just kind of a toy? And he said, well, no, think about it. You know, the resolution of that touchscreen monitor and the precision of the timing is way better than the monitor that I use for my dissertation. And I bet the same is true of the auditory output. And I thought about it and I said, yeah, we had, you know, custom built 16 bit, uh, you know, 24K sampling rate uh, digital uh, devices in, in the lab when I was at Berkeley. And I, we were pretty proud of them. But um, the iPad, you know, does way, way better than that. And so 
uh, we started building some tools, uh, making use of, of his expertise at, at building things for iPads. And uh, the very first test that we did showed that, um, yeah, we could get auditory outputs that were uh, identical to what we would get in the laboratory uh, from the iPad. And at that point, I realized, okay, this is fantastic because not only do I want to get these tools into the hands of clinicians, but I want to get it in the hands of clinical researchers and clinicians who have access to these populations because due to the heterogeneity in these, in these patients, um, there's no way that I can bring in the you know, 300, 500 patients that I would need to really get strong evidence about what's going on if I had to bring them all into my lab. But if I flip the lab and take the lab to the patients in the form of these iPads and just put the iPads in the hands of all of my clinical research partners and, and clinicians who are interested and aggregate all the data, now I have some chance of getting the evidence that we need to really drive clinical care forward. And for those listeners who might be interested in seeing what testing is like or playing around with this, is this something that would be available that they could take a look at? Yeah, so we we were we were uh, successful in getting an NIH grant uh, to to build this, and so uh, the the U.S. government has has paid for it, and so as taxpayers or or even people who aren't U.S. citizens, um, this is this is yours. It's free. It's uh, it's on the it's on the App Store. If you go to the UC Riverside Brain Game Center website, um, you can uh, under games. There's a one of, one of the games is called PART, so that's Portable Auditory Rapid Testing. Um, and the link to, to the, the, uh, um, the App Store uh, is, is on there, and also some description of it, and also a link to uh, how to use it. Uh, the, the whole manual is, is on GitHub, as well as some example uh, tests that you can download. Awesome. We can put a link to that in the show notes and if people want to take a look at it. Great. And, and feel free to feel free to email me if you're if you're interested in using it, um, just checking it out. Or uh, also um, for for students, we found that uh, um, students who are learning about um, auditory perception find it uh, much more intuitive to do the test on themselves uh, on the iPad as opposed to just reading about it. Excellent. Okay, so you've got uh, Joe. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I've been hogging. Oh, no, 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 no worries. No, that's that's great that you have the uh, the test on the iPad um, and you know making it available. Do you think this is something that could be used clinically that will that will have clinical application in the in the future? I do, I do. Um, we are uh, in the process of um, uh, collaborating with a bunch of different clinical research labs to um, try and figure out what the best tests are. Um, to add to what we know about uh, different patient populations, um, and then uh, also, uh, hopefully, that will will help inform rehabilitation. You know, we we really think that some of these basic super threshold processing abilities um, are uh, essential building blocks of auditory perception, and the way that I was talking about before, in terms of parsing the auditory scene, uh, and so. Uh, when somebody is having difficulties, you know, if all you know is what the ear is doing, um, 
you you probably aren't going to be able to make as good a guess as as what kind of hearing aid they need um, and and what what hearing aid is going to work best um, yeah one of the so, challenges that we've uh, Rolf and I both have experienced in understanding uh, how you know cognitive rehabilitation works I'm, I'm imagining some of the same problems occur in, in this auditory processing work is uh, you know with a just the sense that the assessments themselves are um, are not as widely used or understood in terms of what they mean for people's everyday lives it's it makes assessment of efficacy of the training difficult or you know there's a there's a lack of a framework i guess i would say for understanding what's working and not working yeah i would agree with that and especially i think you're getting at joe to the transferability of of uh, that's exactly what i was yeah exactly yeah, yeah. some of these things that, that 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 actually brings up uh another topic that i definitely was hoping to talk to you guys about um we have a, a grant that we that we wrote that got some good feedback, and we're we're going to be rewriting it. But the premise of it is uh, that if we took our testing not only uh, out of the booth but into virtual reality, that we could actually scale all the way from you're doing a test in a completely gray environment and just hearing sounds to you're doing tests in a you know simplified environment where you've got little you know, blocks that are making sound to you're making, you're doing the, you know, a more complicated test where there are, you know, faces that are, that are, that are, that are talking to, okay, now you're actually in the restaurant trying to do a complicated task. And let's give you some motivation in the same way that you really would like to uh, successfully order a beer from the waitress. Let's see if we can, can make you actually want to do well on our tasks as well. And that we think that the VR environment will allow us to do that scaling. And so we could do the testing and training in there, and we could do the evaluation in a simulated real-world environment. Boy, that seems like a perfect application of VR, actually. Um, I think that that sounds like it would have a lot of promise behind it, um, especially for things like localizing. Uh, if, if one of the problems that you're having, like you say, is issues of timing, then uh, and, and as you mentioned before, say you're at a party and you're having trouble associating a particular location with a particular speaker because you're just not getting that timing right because it's so your auditory system so sensitive to tiny amounts of timing difference for localizing. That seems like you could um, you could get in a, a nice immersive environment where people could give a, a pointing response or some other. Uh, indication of where they thought something was and you could you could really get a sensitive measure of something like this but also of course uh noisy and more uh um difficult environments to navigate through seems it just seems ideal for it i think you could control for quite a bit i love it i want to see what happens what do you think is going to happen um I think I think we can I think we can definitely leverage this because um, not only do we have uh, control over everything, right? If you're in the booth and I play, you know, a bunch of people talking, but you look around and you realize that you're actually sitting in a dark booth wearing headphones and there's somebody staring at you through a glass right. window, 
you know, checking to see if you get it right, like there's a mismatch, mm-hmm. right? And I, I, I just, I, I don't have data on this yet, but I, I, I feel that there's a, a fundamental issue with that mismatch, that it's, it's just going to, um, you know, some people it's not going to matter. Some people it's really going to hurt their performance. And so now you have a big source of error in your, in your measurement uh, that could be taken out by just controlling the visual environment as well. And again, maybe just turning it all gray is, is, is sufficient, but I, I think it'd be better to put, you know, uninformative sources in the places where the sounds are supposed to be coming from. Yeah, absolutely. This might be a good time to take a break and we can come back and uh, talk about some additional topics. And we're back. Eric, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the role that hearing aids play in some of this work? Yeah, yeah. So when I started working on this, um, I sort of had a, a, a very simplistic view of, of what a hearing aid does. You know, I thought, well, it just, it's an amplifier, right? It, it's an amplifier that you wear in your ear. And it's kind of amazing that you can, you know, get something that works. But then I started learning more, and I realized it's it's not just an amplifier. These days, uh, they're all digital. You can't can't really buy an analog hearing aid any, anymore, which means that you have uh, a computer processor that's about as uh, powerful as uh, you know the the uh, Pentium three, uh, except you can wear it um, inside your ear and power it with a battery the size of an aspirin. Um, so there's a lot of things that you can do with this uh, miraculous device. Um, and the hearing aid companies have been working very, very hard. Uh, and the things that that pretty much all modern hearing aids include are uh, noise reduction and uh, uh, directional microphones. And so that means that uh, you're actually getting a sound that's not just uh, louder than it would be normally but actually has been cleaned up. Um, it's gotten a lot of the background noise taken out and um, the directional microphone amplifies what's in front of you uh, and not what's behind you. And so uh, that also helps you know, clean up the auditory scene. Um, maybe it's the way you want it cleaned up, maybe it's not. So that's, that's a question of, of how the hearing aid should be set. Um, but it's something that I didn't appreciate, and it might be why uh, people without uh, a need for much amplification still benefit from hearing aids. And you can adjust the directionality as well, right? So if you yep. want a more omnidirectional sound, you can get that. If you want something that's directional, for example, if there are different situations, if you're sitting across from someone uh, at, a, at a dinner table, that might be one setting where you're getting a very directional kind of sound. Uh, versus if you're, say, at a concert, you might want a more omnidirectional type of sound. Uh, depending on the listening environment, you might, you can, and some of these will, uh, devices will adjust automatically. Uh, many of them you can adjust manually. So there's, there's a lot going on there. And yeah. so you can also filter out for certain frequencies, too, I would imagine. Are there some frequencies that 
um, tend to be more useful and some that tend to be less useful that might be filtered out? Um, it, it's it's hard. So this this gets into the one of the, one of the questions where it would be nice if your hearing aid knew what the environment was and what you were trying to listen for and what task you were trying to do. Uh, because you could you could do some pretty sophisticated signal processing if you knew those things, but in general, because you don't, it's not clear what information should be taken away. Um, right. So if you're filtering out too many high frequencies and then you go out bird watching, you're going to be impaired. Well, you... and, and speech, uh, even though most of the energy in speech is in the the sort of mid frequencies. Um, the difference between uh, a lot of consonant, uh, uh, you know, sh versus z um, is all in the high frequencies. So by filtering that out, you'd lose. Yeah, lose quite a bit. And also, yeah, mostly people who have hearing loss have hearing loss in the high frequency range. So you're actually amplifying the high frequencies usually more than the low frequencies. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in, in, in general, there's there's probably still more work to be done there. In terms of artificial intelligence of yeah. understanding the yeah. environment, uh, one of the issues that I'm super interested in uh, has to do with brain plasticity and how it relates to hearing aids. There's a, the hypothesis that's been put out there and, and written about a decent amount, which says something along the lines of if you have a hearing loss that affects uh, certain frequencies, you're having less input to the auditory system in your everyday life. And as a consequence, you could have negative plastic processes in the brain. In other words, your brain is adjusting and changing in a negative way because there's just not that input. That input is not there and your brain is essentially giving up on that part of the, uh, the world, if you will. And by giving someone hearing aids, you can actually reintroduce that processing and and perhaps stave off some of this negative plastic process and actually maybe even improve someone's cognition over what they would have if they hadn't been wearing them. So not just that the hearing itself is improving things, but that by getting this extra input, you're actually uh, advantaging the brain uh, over time. Is this something that you've thought about at all, or do you have thoughts on this yeah. topic? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's a that's a really exciting and intriguing hypothesis. And parts of it we know are true, and parts of it we I, I think they're in the process of getting the data. So the thing that we know is true is that uh, the brain does uh, have this negative plasticity, um, and so you can see this both in looking at imaging and looking at uh, just the uh, amount of um, brain uh, mass in different areas uh, associated with deprivation. Um, and, and, you know, there's, 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 uh, you can basically see uh, with functional imaging, um, you can see areas that are getting good input taking over areas that are getting that are not getting input. Um, and then when you do get input, uh, it's hard for those areas to, to, to take back their, their, their territory. Um, this, is, this is very clearly shown in 
the cochlear implant uh, literature. So mm. cochlear implants are um, the only sensory prosthesis that are currently being worn by um, hundreds of thousands of people very successfully. Um, there's, there's no vision or vestibular or uh, somatosensory prosthesis that, that works at, at that level at all and is in, in such clinical usage. Um, but there's a lot of heterogeneity in terms of how well people do. And one of the most significant factors is length of deprivation. So the sooner you get your cochlear implant, the better you're going to do. And part of that Hello? Oh. Hello? Oh, I think he dropped. We lost him. Oh. Let's call him back. Add. I think I'm I trying. hit a button. I did too. Some people call him to Hello? Now I'm back. Oh, hey. Hey, I'm sorry back. about that, Eric. We, uh, we, we dropped you. Oh, okay. Okay, so uh, sorry. Uh, oh, let's see where exactly. We go. Mm, not too far. Just like thirty seconds. Okay. So let me see. Can we cue you back? Uh, We're talking about cochlear implants. Cochlear implants. Yeah. Should I should I start with the cochlear implant thing again? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good place. Sorry. Um. So one area that we, we know for sure that deprivation matters is cochlear implants. Um, so cochlear implants are the most successful sensory prosthesis um, that has ever existed. There are hundreds of thousands of people wearing them, and some of them are extremely successful. Uh, they can talk on the phone with these things. Uh, it's basically an electrode that stimulates your auditory nerve directly, which is amazing. That it works. So if you're if most of your ear is not working, you could you just you just get a microphone and plug its output directly into the cochlea where sound is transduced into a neural signal. It's not quite that simple, but we you can think of it that way for sure. And the That's cochlea is basically part of the brain, right? So what happens is the the electrical signals actually go uh, you, you put the electrode into the cochlea and then the electrical signals go through the bone of the cochlea and stimulate the auditory nerve. So, so you're making the auditory nerve fire in response to sound. So they're not directly stimulating the cochlea? No, they're directly stimulating the auditory nerve. So you can, you can have a completely dead cochlea. Oh. Uh, I assumed it meant that you needed a working cochlea, but that's interesting. Okay, well, that's... So I'm I might I, I'm totally deaf in my right ear. Uh, I had a, a tumor grow on my auditory nerve, and they they sectioned the nerve to to take out the tumor. So my cochlea might be working, but I don't have an auditory nerve, so I can't have a cochlear implant. Um, so it's it's an amazing device, and one thing that it's it's taught us a number of things about just how hearing works. Um, one of the things that it's taught us is about this deprivation question. So um, we know that people who get their cochlear implants sooner do better. Uh, and part of this is, is uh, just the normal uh, plasticity of uh, children as compared to adults. So if you give a cochlear implant to a baby, um, 
they will do better than if you wait until it's a teenager or um, a young adult or an After older. After its adult. brain has already figured out how to organize itself without this auditory input. That's right. Um, but it's also the case that if you take um, an older adult who has had one ear that's been amplified their whole lives and another ear that has not, uh, and you implant both of them, they're much more likely to do well with the ear that has been getting stimulation than the ear that has not. Now, there's often a confound, which is that they haven't been getting amplification in, in one ear because it's worse ear, but in general, these data are suggestive of, of this idea that the uh, the auditory cortex or, or other brain areas sort of uh, take, uh, take over whatever territory they can. And so if you're not getting input in a particular area, um, other brain areas say, I, I, can, I can use that real estate. The use it or lose it uh, idea. Yeah. Okay, so, all right, so hearing aids seem to work. You mentioned that hearing aids work partially or um, occasionally on people with um, the kind of hearing loss that you've been talking about. Uh, and we talked just a tad about brain training. I wonder if you have any insights or thoughts about, uh, again, since both Joe and I have worked on brain training stuff before, about what kind of um, training might be effective or helpful for people with this kind of uh, trauma. Funny you should ask. In fact, we have an NIH grant uh, to develop um, a uh, auditory training game that is also available at the UC Riverside Brain Game Center website. Same, so same link, okay. Yeah, except this time if you go into their games and instead of uh, clicking on the link that says part, you click on the link that says listen. So listen is an auditory training experience. Um, and I won't I won't promise that it that it works. We are actively um, improving it right now. So hopefully there'll be a new version that that is uh, even better soon. But you can you can get a, a sense of what we're what we're working on. Uh, we've identified sort of three areas that we think are uh, the most fruitful things to uh, provide training on. Uh, one of them is uh, just um, spatial awareness of sound. So uh, there's part of the game where um, you have to make discriminations as to whether a sound came from the left or the right. There's also another part of the game that has to do with frequency changes. So you hear these sounds that are either rising or falling in frequency. So they're going whoop or woo. And uh, your job in this game is you're a, you're a little wisp, a little dot, flying down a dark tunnel, and occasionally these electric barriers come up either horizontally across the tunnel or vertically from between the top and bottom, and you have to move your little wisp um, either left or right or up or down to avoid uh, getting zapped. And these sounds tell you uh, should you be going up or down, left or right. And so we think that um, increased awareness of these two dimensions uh, could really help people um, sort of get their brains doing the sorts of tasks that you need to do to to have the building blocks you need to create awareness of, of sound sources in the environment. And then the third part um, 
is an auditory memory task. So you hear these sort of funny sounds in a sequence, and there are rings that you can go through, and you go through one ring. Uh, if you uh, hear the same sound and you go through a different ring, if you hear different sounds, it's basically the NBAC task. So you're not comparing to the sound you just heard, but you're comparing to the sound that you heard two sounds ago. Um, this is a, a wickedly difficult task. It sounds really simple, but it's uh, really difficult. Aaron can do it. I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and how far along in uh, progress are uh, is a training program? So uh, we 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 have it working. It's uh, it's available again for free on the App Store. Um, we've done some testing with uh, uh, young normal hearing undergraduates at UC Riverside, uh, and we think we have things working to the point where uh, we can actually see improvement uh, in these abilities over training, uh, and maybe a little transfer to some of the um, tasks that we have in part. Um, but we think that maybe uh, running it on uh, normal hearing undergraduates is not really the best way to see whether or not they work because these folks are all doing quite well at these tasks when they show up. And so uh, this summer, uh, one of Aaron's graduate students is going to come up to Portland and we are going to start uh, sending iPads home with people and, and having them play the game and then see see what happens. Cool. How, how much uh, training do you think uh, you might need to do to see some effects? Um, we we see the in-game learning uh, pretty quickly. Um, so uh, I think we'll probably uh, only have these people do maybe maybe five uh, home training sessions. Uh, but this will really be more of a of a test of whether or not we can convince people to play the game and what they think of the game um, if we see some learning great but this is more usability so this is a this is an ro3 um through the national institute for uh, human and child development and so the goal is to to get something that that we can then use to to get a larger grant to do to more serious study but it's it's been remarkable to me how much uh work goes into just getting something to the point where you can start to ask the question whether or not you should be doing what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For real. Oh, that, that's that's funny. That that's that's really cool though. That's a uh, good luck with that that project. That's uh that's potentially some uh, important work for for people who are having these kinds of problems, especially some of our veterans. Yeah, yeah. we'll we'll certainly be on the lookout for updates on this too. Uh, I think. One of the things that I think is that, you know, honestly, even if we didn't get the brain to change, you know, what what territory was doing what, um, just helping people learn to pay attention to sound might be very helpful. Uh, my mom has been doing some volunteering and at the NCRAR and, and comes into the lab and, and sits through our tests and stuff. And uh, I asked her to play the game. And you know, she thought it was pretty interesting. And then we were we were walking walking home, and she said, "You know, I I never really thought about the fact that sounds have locations. Like I knew that things have locations, right? That car is over there, but I can't see that car, but I can hear it, and I know where it's coming from. 
And I think after playing your game, like, I'm just sort of more aware of that. I just hadn't really taken it apart. Um, and so for me, if, if, that's, if that's all that we um, manage to uh, teach people, I, I think we, we might still be very beneficial. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that is unquestionably trainable uh, that kind of pervades a lot of the literature and uh, in these types of uh, tasks, but I think is not always appreciated, is just the idea that uh, the dynamic control of attention. So the ability to attend to certain things and not others or certain things preferentially to others uh, is a, a skill that is extremely trainable and could potentially be beneficial to be trained. Yeah. Yeah. This also it also seems useful uh, in terms of it's, so imagine if I if I had a hearing loss in this sort of sense, I probably might be less likely to go out and be in environments where you're getting this kind of complex noise. So it might be that you're getting some avoidance of situations which might um, lead to further atrophy or further kinds of problems. So, Maybe with something like this, you're also getting uh, you're getting something that people can actively participate in, and maybe work on uh, cognitive strategies to uh, you know to immerse themselves a little bit more and pay attention in complicated environments too, which might be a good a good place for um, recuperation rather than than isolating themselves. That's a great point. Uh, one of the things that uh, I've learned from the from working with the concussion patients and the concussion doctors is that there's this idea of, of active rest, right? So it used to be that they said, oh, after you get a, get a concussion, you should just sit in a dark, quiet room for two weeks. And that, that, that's, that's not true anymore. They, was, they said, no, you, you, you don't want to do that. You know, it's, it's like after you've uh, broken your leg, you know, you, you need to, you know, get the muscles working again. Don't, don't stress yourself too much. As soon as you, you know, start to feel like you've got a little bit of a headache or whatever, stop. But you should you should be doing something. Um, and I think that a lot of people with hearing loss um, give up and uh, avoid the social situations. And um, you know, Joe was talking about this idea of whether or not cognition can be improved by. Uh, giving people access to to sound, and we we know that there are strong correlations between cognition and hearing loss. We don't know what the causes are. Um, uh, it might be that there's some some third factor that's that's causing both. But it would not be crazy to me to think that um, if you are not putting yourself in these challenging situations that you just get less used to making these, you know, doing these cognitive tasks and, and using your brain in, in, in these ways. Um, and so finding any way to encourage people to engage with sound and uh, engage with other people, I think would be beneficial. Interesting. Cool, so uh, what do you, what are you most excited about in the field right now in terms of where things are going, whether it's, you know, something you're directly working on or your colleagues are working on? Yeah, so um, the idea that uh, we can really start uh, using technology to help everybody hear better 
is very exciting to me. The you know the fact that um, Bose has come out with a hearing system that uh, is uh, useful for people both with and without hearing loss uh, is very exciting to me. Uh, the fact that the uh, Apple earbuds are are now uh, really um, beginning to function, you know, as as assistive devices is exciting. There's a there's a company called New Hera that has uh, a device that they call IQ buds that are that are just for helping people have uh, you know super super normal hearing, you know, and the, I I think that there's uh, no reason to think that people with normal thresholds can't do better in uh, complex and noisy environments. And the more control you have over what the sound is that's reaching your ears, uh, the better you're going to do. So I imagine a time when you have um, very, very small, almost undetectable devices that you can wear in your ears and you take out your phone and you look on the app and it tells you what all the sound sources are around you. And you just go through and you 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 like make make this one bigger, kill that one, record this one, you know. That's great. That's really that's really cool. That and that also leads perfectly <laughs> into the uh, to the last question, which we have to ask always. I'm thinking is, how to phrase this. How is this getting phrased? <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, how does this lead to uh, the robo apocalypse? <laughs> or how how is what's the, what's the dystopian? What's uh, the relation between hearing and the robo apocalypse? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <In> audition. <laughs> what does the robo apocalypse sound like? <laughs> Maybe I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, there there are a number of number of versions of of uh, this dystopian uh, future. Um, one of the most obvious ones is that um, every device uh, around you has a microphone and all of the information is being captured and sent to uh, the cloud and there are machine learning algorithms that are uh, aware of absolutely everything that's happening at all times. Let's not be absurd, Eric. No, that could never happen. <laughs> <laughs> we know that multi-microphone arrays are tremendously effective. We know that the machine learning algorithms are already uh, Predicting what you're going to type before you type it. Why? Why can you know? I'm sure they can predict what I'm going to say before I say it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what, one of the things that related to that is, um, you know, as you were talking about the smart buds, you know, the IQ buds. You know, there's some. Uh, you know, for example, Starkey has come out with a artificial intelligence hearing aid that they're touting as being able to translate foreign languages in relatively, you know, real time. Mm. Which is super cool, right? But I, so that's the positive. The, the negative is then if that actually works, no one has to learn a foreign language. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like we've lost something really important if if you know if and when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. No. And you know we've we've already seen um, some some beginnings of this uh, cognitive decline. Um, if you if you do a um, working memory task task where you ask somebody to repeat back a string of digits, um, you will find that there's an age effect, but tragically, it goes in the wrong direction. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we're getting, we're getting worse at... Phone number, have no idea what you're talking about, and have no practice on this task. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Well, I think that might be a, a great place to, to wrap up the, the conversation uh, as we've discovered the, the dystopian uh, negative consequence. But I think the, the work that you're doing now is, is awesome and uh, is going to help a lot of people. So, uh, you know, thanks for being on the show and uh, we, we really appreciate it. Really fantastic. Thanks a lot, Eric. Great, great. Thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun.